Everyone, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. So we just constant harassment all during those years. We had fishing rights, uh, getting arrested for uh, exercising our sovereignty on our own land. So it, it was brewing for quite a while. And, and what happened that wounded me was just kind of like a, a big old soda a bolt of electricity or a thunder and ignited something that was brewing and I had to be a part of it. I've been an activist all my life. Today on American Indian Airwaves, the 50th anniversary of the occupation of Wounded Knee, we continue our series from a Yurok perspective. We'll speak with a longtime Yurok activist from Northern California of the Yurok Nation and their lived experiences during the reign of terror from the Yurok Nation to their participation in the occupation of Wounded Knee in 1973. All that and more here on American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone Today on American Indian Airwaves, we continue our series on the 50th anniversary of the occupation of Wounded Knee of 1973 from a Yurok perspective. The occupation of Wounded Knee was from February 27th of 1973 to May 8th of 1973 and is the outcome of over 200 members of the American Indian movement and supporters occupying Wounded Knee in the Lakota Nation in South Dakota and is in response to a call to action from traditional Lakota residents whose civil, human, and treaty rights were constantly being violated by corrupt Native American and U.S. government officials. The Wounded Knee occupation resulted in a 71-day military standoff with the United States government officials and quickly drew domestic and international support from people, organizations, and foreign governments throughout the world. Our guest for the hour, Willard Carlson, is from the Yurok Nation in Northern California, joins us and shares his lived experiences during the reign of terror in the Yurok Nation and what led him to Wounded Knee in 1973. For the hour, I'm joined by executive producer Marcus Lopez of American Indian Airwaves as we interview longtime Native American Yurok activist and fisherman Willard Carlson. And we start the interview by asking him what took him to Wounded Knee in 1973. Well, I... I was a young student at Humboldt State University in Northern California, and we were following news events when Wounded Knee, when they took the uh, village over 
And right then and there, I thought, wow, this is really something because it's like uh, natives are fighting back, you know. And so Dennis Banks and Russell Means were on national TV, and they were calling for help from all tribes and others. Like they wanted, you know, support. Like, hey, to me, it was called all nations, all people to come together. And I knew right then and there that I was going to go to Wounded Knee. We had a few of us on the um, campus there, uh, Humboldt State University. And so a couple of the guys started organizing these rallies. And so there was, you know, a lot of different students and we had a fairly good uh, Native American uh, population, and we had uh, Chicano. There was a black student union. So there was quite a few people of color there. So it, they had these rallies and asked for, you know, support, money, uh, you know, blankets and materials and things like that. So I, I immediately took, went out recruiting. So I, I had went up to the Oregon border, which is not too far from here. And my mother and um, her man at that time had a fairly big family, so they had a pretty big house. So I knew they had guns. So I went and talked to my mother, and I told her it was, you know, wounded knee was happening, and Indians were, like, you know, encircled by um, uh, federal agents and uh, what have you. And there was a lot of shooting going on. They need help. So I I got uh, like about eight, you know, operational rifles for my mother. So I had a thirty thirty, and I went talk to people up in the neighboring reservation from here at Hoopa. I talked to oh a lot of people said, oh yes, I'll, we'll meet you here um, in Arcata uh, next Sunday. It was about a week, I guess, and. Uh, so I went down to the place called Arcata Plaza, pretty close to the university. And I'm there at 8 o'clock, and I'm the only one there. I was expecting 40, 50 people to show up or so, you know, that gave me the word they're going to show up. So I had a couple buddies, there were two brothers, that lived about six miles away. And so I went on over, drove over to see them. They said, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're just, we overslept. So they got all their gear and they had a, like a Chevy truck, you know, big old uh, 64 Chevy truck with a big camper on it. No back door, had a canvas flap. So they showed up and we went back to the plaza. And then finally, a couple of guys that were organizing all these events and doing the speeches on campus, they showed up and they said, are you guys serious about going? I said, hey. We're going to leave with you or without you. Damn right we're serious. So they said, well, give us an hour. So they took about two and a half, three hours to go get their, get their belongings and things. So a, a university professor had uh, pulled up on his 10-speed bicycle, and he handed me a $80 check. And I did it, never catch his name, but he was uh, obviously a supporter, and I kept that check and... Finally, six of us men and two women, we had two vehicles, we left Arcata, and then we went to, we headed east. We stopped at a place called Willow Creek, which is not too far from Arcata, and there was a gun and ammo uh, store there. So back then, $80 had bought a lot of ammunition, bless what ammunition we had. So we made it to Wounded Knee, but, um, but getting there, I just had to be there. As there, there was a lot of... Um, I think it's been brewing for for a long time, you know.
like you know we in the 60s we had uh there was the civil rights and everything happening in alabama and all the big cities with the blacks and then uh, alcatraz happened in 69 and a friend of mine named richard oaks mm. uh, had bailed off the uh, one of the boats and swam to a uh, Alcatraz be one of the first ones to reclaim this uh, abandoned uh, facility, detention facility. So I, I think the time was right. And when Banks and Means were on national TV, I knew it was our turn to make something happen because of all of the injustices, racism. There was a lot of trouble in the Indian country everywhere, and we were kind of aware of, you know, different things happening, you know. Protests were happening, so it was the it was Vietnam War. So for, for us natives and other people who went, it was our turn. And so I just, um, I didn't want to, it's kind of like I didn't want to miss the boat, you know. Mm. Willard, you talked about the fact that you felt you were obligated and you the time you made your decision to go, like you said, we got to go and support my discussions. And with you earlier, about about five years ago, when they, when you came down to Santa Barbara, but you mentioned that you could relate to the issues that the Lakota people were going through. Please talk about what was the problems in your territory. You. You mentioned certain things. Once you share with that with the public, then what were the problems were, and how can you relate to here all the way people in uh, Pine Ridge or that area? Once you explain that for us. Well, being being a student, there was you know several tribes members. Uh, we had a real good Native American uh, studies program, Humboldt State, so it was it was very diverse. But the the Humboldt County Sheriff, RKA police, were pretty heavy-handed when it came to reservations and, and, and Native Americans. They looked at Native Americans as uh, less, I was have to say, like, you know, second-class citizens. And if you went to town, it was like, you know, if okay, if, if there was a little gathering and they heard there was a little thing going on, on the campus, there was always a police presence there. There was like one one fellow uh, I forget his name. He was nonviolent, and they took him up to the Humboldt County Jail there, Fifth Florida Jail in Eureka, California. So they stopped the elevator, and they they just kicked the heck out of him. They really put the boots to him, kicked him in the groin, just just gave him a, a really bad beating. And I remember some of the activists like went and visited him and took photos and, you know, and tried to give that to the DA and everything was ignored. So what was happening with uh, in uh, the Dakotas and, and Nebraska with uh, killings and cowboys uh, beat some man to death and he, he died in a car, in a car lot, threw his body somewhere, cigarette burns. Well, there was a lot of things like that happening up here. I, I know that the there was a man, uh, maybe it was just about a year after wounded knee, but it kind of it's a chronology of the treatment of Native American people. A Indian man was coming back from his job. He worked at a local sawmill, and he lived in a 
place in McKinleyville, which is just a little north of Eureka, probably no more than 11 miles. And so the he, he was returned home, and a California Highway Patrol had stopped him and right on Highway 101, real close to the campus. And that Highway Patrol executed that man, shot him right in the forehead, and then he fled the scene. So the Arcata police had tracked him down by the radio transmissions. So this Highway Patrol guy, he merely lost his job, and they compensated the guy's widow, and he had three children. So about, about a year and a half later, there was a Mexican guy. He named, his name was Lou Brero. He was a friend of ours. So a little, little older than me, a few years older than me. And he had a motorcycle shop real close to where this highway patrol stopped uh, this uh, native on his motorcycle. And they had the same kind of color bike and same kind of helmet, like, you know, like a silver helmet. And he said, Willard, I need to talk to you. I said, hey, dude, what's up? So we went outside uh, of this building we were at, bar. We talked for a little bit, and he says, you know that guy who got killed by a year ago or so? I said, yeah. I didn't know him, but he said that highway patrol meant to kill him because this guy in Lou Brero and the highway patrol's wife was having an extramarital affair. So we had, you know, a white bartender killing a friend of mine in a bar in Willow Creek. And so there was all these killings, and they were just ignored. And, you know, it. we had... Um, we had problems with the timber companies. Our our reservation is like a 45-mile stretch of, from the Pacific Ocean up to a place called Wedgepeck upriver. And we got one aerial mile on each side of land that was really, was stolen from our ancestors. So we people would get arrested by traveling to uh, timber company land to access your own. My mother got arrested uh, maybe 20-some times when I was a student. For trespassing, the Cumberland County Sheriff did come by to my place close to campus there, and they'd have all their belongings, rifles, sleeping bags, pots and pans. They said, man, we don't know why we have to do this. So here they are. Here's my mother and her husband at that time in the back of a patrol car. So it was just constant harassment all during those years. We had fishing rights, uh, getting arrested for uh, exercising our sovereignty on our own land. So it it was brewing for quite a while, and and what happened at Wounded Knee was just kind of like a a big old throw a, a bolt of electricity or a thunder and ignited something that's been was brewing and. I, I had to be a part of it. I've been an activist all my life. And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves on our ongoing series on the 50th anniversary of the occupation of Wounded Knee in 1973. We're speaking with longtime Native American activist, fisherman, and citizen of the Yurok Nation in Northern California, Willard Carlson, on his lived experiences during the reign of terror from the Yurok Nation to his participation in Wounded Knee. And now back to the interview. I've been uh, growing up being discriminated in school and teachers doing the war hoop and trying to tell you, you know, make you feel like you had to wear long sleeve shirts to school, you know, fifth, sixth grade. And I didn't want to sing some gospel song about Ezekiel way up in the air and I got an F for that, sent the principal's office, and then, then they wanted me to make square dance and wear a hoop because I refused. You know, it was just so degrading. Now, Willard, you mentioned the um, 
going to the territory uh, on your nation, and what nation is that? The Yurok, Yurok Nation. We're the Yurok tribe. Uh, there's quite a few tribes, or a few tribes here. There's the Tolawa, that's our northern neighbors. The next uh, reservation over is Hoopa, and our upriver cousins on the on the Klamath River is is the Kuruk. And you're rocking down in Eureka in the uh, Humboldt County area. You have the um, Weot. Thank you. So, uh, you know. Yes, and and people don't know this, but there was a massive fishing rights struggle, if you will. What was that like to be in? Well, 1978, it was the, the longest walk from San Francisco was was going to Washington, D.C. for all of our native rights. And so we had friends on that caravan that were organized out of San Francisco to Washington, D.C. So they were going to uh, arrive at Washington, D.C. on July 15, 1978. But some of the Bay Area Indians, uh, Bill Walker was like... Um, all out of Oakland and kind of had a American Indian movement chapter like so they had asked uh, my mother my brother my brother's wife and me if we wanted to fly over to Washington DC on July 15th be there from July 15th 1978 that's when all along this walk and I have this big rally so I told my mother my brother and his wife and them I said you guys go because I, I have to stay here because the U.S. Fish and Wildlife had declared a moratorium on our fishing rights. They And the reason why is they said we were killing all the salmon and that we were like all multimillionaires. And, and you know, you had offshore fishing, you had uh, sportsmen, you had the guides, you had all these different people trying to point the finger at us and saying we were just declining. Yeah, we... Some of us had some pickups and new trucks, and we were commercial fish when we exercised our rights. But they tried to say we had multi-million-dollar black markets, and 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 that wasn't so. So I told my mother and my brother, "You guys go. I'm going to stay here." So July 15th, when they were in all Washington D.C., I made my couple friends, and then about three or four other boats. We exercised our fishing rights. We, we had some nets in our boats down the mouth of the river here at the um, estuary to have on the on our reservation. And here comes fish and wildlife. They're taking information. They're stopped by interviewing people. They come to our boat. And the guy, he introduced himself. He said his name was Al Weinrich, Senior Officer uh, of Enforcement, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And so he wanted to take some names. So, you know. My friend Joe, he says his name is Charlie, Charlie Fishhead. And my friend Paul, he he said he, he was Captain Fishguts. We were just laughing. And they asked me, um, well, who are you, sir? I said, well, who are you? And he goes, well, I'm Al Weinrich. He goes, you are in violation of moratorium. I said, no, sir. I says, you are in violation of our sovereign territorial waters. So he said, well, what's your name? I told him I was Admiral Carlson of Rock Navy. And he looked at me, and he takes all this information down. So he says, I said, so he handed me his paper, and I told him, why are you guys here? And he said, well, you guys are, they declared moratorium because there's this client in the salmon population where you're protected. I said, well, I said, you know, I said, you guys got to go over fishing right now. So they they left. So 
fast forward to August 15th. Everybody come back and the longest walk and a few things like that. And so we're getting our boat ready, and there's going to be a big fishing demo down at the mouth of the river. So everybody's going to throw their nets out and exercise our right in defiance of the moratorium that's declared upon our nation and our people. So we had a lot of different natives and people from all over. I mean, you know, some from North Carolina, Oklahoma, Kupas. Nobody, nobody tripped about it, said, well, what tribe are you? You know, it was just people coming together. So we had this great big fight with the um, Fish and Wildlife Service. So they started ramming, ramming boats, clubbing people, big old boats with uh, big motors. And uh, they had helmets on and clubs and shields. They even had the uh, in violation of the uh, how they used the military in Wounded Knee in 1973 when uh, the military was taking over the operations, uh, landing all their uh, equipment and everything at Chadburn, Nebraska. So that's why a lot of charges of people who got charged in Wounded Knee was, got them dropped because it was illegal for a domestic uh, civil disorder, supposedly. Well, the U.S. Coast Guard was assisting these federal agents. So in the heat of battle, they sunk some boats and they arrested some friends. And so then we started disabling their boats by putting rope and things in their propellers. And so then it got real heated. And a friend of mine who's no longer here, a lot of those people are gone, he was fighting his head and he had an oar and he was, this famous photo was taken and you could, and we were very close. We were probably 50, 60, 50 feet away, maybe, in our boat. And this uh, federal agent starts pulling out an M16. So that guy's superior officer told that guy, put that effing thing away. And so when we seen that rifle coming out, me and my brother and my friend Frank Erickson, we all started pulling our guns out. So you're, and we're talking about a hundred boats on the water, probably you know, little boats, fishing boats, you name it. Uh, one guy was a little, uh, little guy was in a, he was from the Examiner, a photographer, and he was an old guy. My brother almost sank him, and I told him, no, he's okay, he's depressed. So that gun was almost pulled out, and he was act, he was going to shoot our friend. And as soon as they put it away, I said, brother, we nobody's seen us pulling our guns out. So. It was very, very intense. Our our boat, we knew they had weapons, and so only some of us had weapons, but we were, we were heavily armed. So it could have been a real big shootout on the river. And it went on for a while there, and then so every day after that, we at least threw one net out. We had several confrontations in boats. A friend of mine... Uh, Four of them got arrested that day, and others got clubs, and a lot of people didn't come back after they got their heads worked over batons, you know. But we still made it a point to at least exercise our rights throughout the whole season, and we had uh, quite a few confrontations with those guys. And mind you that a lot of those officers and were from all the deep south, Corpus Christi, Texas, Louisiana, Florida, Dixieland. And so the Al Weinrich, the senior officer, he acted like he wanted to be a friend. But, you know, we were enemies, you know. So we all went to this restaurant 
um, after a day on the water protesting, and I got this U.S. Uh, Fish and Wildlife uh, hat on that when the fight, it fell in the water, so I put it on. And so here comes Al Weinrich, and all these feds sitting there eating in this fairly big restaurant. So he comes on over here, and he wants to sit down at my table. And he says, uh, Willard, he goes, uh, I want that hat back. I says, Al. I says, is this a felony or misdemeanor? He says, oh, it's a misdemeanor. I said, don't worry about it. I said, it's mine. I own it. And I said, Al, I said, you know, you guys are wrong. You guys need to leave. I says, I said, you guys are in violation. And I said, I remember that. And I said, we're at war right now. And I know we're, we're at, everybody's having dinner. But, hey, you need to go sit at your own table. So in that dining room, in the adjacent dining room, there was 10 or 12 uh, natives in green uh, camouflage fatigues, like, you know. And I looked at them when I was paying the bill, and I said, hey, where the heck are you guys from? They wouldn't look at me. And I said, were your guys' uh, ancestors with scouts for 7th Calvary? I said, you guys are, you guys want to fight against uh, Indian people? I said, why don't you join us? They didn't want to look at me. But then I told them, I said, you know what? I said, were you guys that wounded me? And I sat pretty loud, and the restaurant just fold, you know. And they still wouldn't look at me, and I said, I might have shot at you. So then I said, I, I, then I asked, well, which one of you guys did the toughest one? I said, let's go out here right now. And they wouldn't look at me. And then the loan, later I found out they were heavily armed with weapons and boats, and they were like, they were on standby somewhere real close by on the outs, the outer edges of the confrontation of the big wars on the, on the river. So they, they uh, I don't know where in the heck they were from, but they were obviously BIA, you know, contingent of uh, heavily armed. So I think that things were carried on from after happened wounded me. They were trying to take every Indian uprising. They, they, wasn't gonna, they weren't going to allow it to happen again. And that was part one of our two-part interview. Willard Carlson, longtime activist and fisherman, on his lived experiences during the reign of terror from the Yurok Nation to his participation in the occupation of Wounded Knee in 1973. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break and come back with part two of the interview. Make me learn your white man rule. Be a fool.
the song Wounded Knee by Floyd Red Crow Westerman here on American Indian Airwaves. In the second segment of our show today, we continue our interview with longtime Native American activist and fisherman from the Yurok Nation, Willard Carlson, on his lived experiences during the reign of terror in the Yurok Nation in Northern California to his experiences in the occupation of Wounded Knee of 1973. The occupation of Wounded Knee is the outcome of over 200 members of the American Indian Movement and supporters occupying Wounded Knee in the Lakota Nation in South Dakota and is in response to a call to action from traditional Lakota residents whose civil, human, and treaty rights were constantly being violated by corrupt Native American government officials and the United States government. The Wounded Knee occupation resulted in a 71-day military standoff with the U.S. government, and it quickly drew domestic and international attention from people, organizations, and foreign governments throughout the world. As part of our ongoing series on the 50th anniversary of the occupation of Wounded Knee, we continue our interview with longtime Native American activist, fisherman, and citizen of the Yurok Nation in Northern California, Willard Carlson, on his lived experiences during the reign of terror in the Yurok Nation to his participation in the occupation of Wounded Knee in 1973. And now, part two of our interview with Willard Carlson here on American Indian Airwaves. Thank you for sharing with us um, your lived experiences in the reign of terror that you and, and other uh, community members and citizens of the Yurok Nation faced uh, during this time. And before that, you you explained how you arrived at Wounded Knee. And I was wondering... What happened when you got to Wounded Knee and, and do your experiences at Wounded Knee reflect your experiences back home uh, with the Reign of Terror and the Yurok Nation? Well, you know, the, the trip to Wounded Knee was very, very perilous. And we had to be very careful, you know, like obey all speed limits. And as we, we had a, a contingent of eight of us, six men and two women. So we had 19 operational rifles, and we had a lot of ammunition. So we got to a place called Chadron, Nebraska, and four of us decided to go into this restaurant, go get some coffee, get a little breakfast, and then the other four were sleeping in the vehicles because we drove, like, nonstop switching places to get over there. And I think it took 28 or 32 hours, something like that. It was a long time to be on the road. But we get on in there to the restaurant and sit down and order our coffee. And I look around and I see all these guys in jumpsuit. And then I thought, wow, these guys are all feds. So I said, hey, guys, I said, this is pay for a coffee. Let's go. Don't panic. Don't look nervous. Just be calm and cool. Let's go up to our vehicles and get it and get out of this town so we're walking out the parking lot and a state trooper comes by from nebraska and he sees us and he whips his car around real fast and he drives to the parking lot gives us the eye i said, just be calm don't look nervous don't even make eye contact and we did it so then we left town we went about four or five miles out of town there was a little road off the side there so we went down this road well, what are we going to do a couple of the brothers 
They said, well, I'm not going to prison. They're going to try to kill us. They're going to stop us. You know, we're at war. So everybody had to agree. Well, if the cops stopped us and they pulled out guns, what are we going to do? Well, we're either going to get killed or we're going to have to defend ourselves. So we all agreed that we were going to shoot it out with them if they pulled guns on us. It was a real hard decision to make. So we got back in the vehicles, loaded all the guns, even the two women. Had a couple pistols. And we would leave, so I said, okay, speed limit is set, just keep five, three or four miles below the speed limit. So I'm the lead vehicle, and I'm looking back in my rearview mirror, and I see this, this trooper following us, and he stays about a quarter mile behind us. So we cruise, and we're trying to get to Rapid City, South Dakota. So he he goes so many miles, and then another one would pick us up. Then we get to another little town. Another one would pick us up. He'd back off. Finally, when we got into the main flow of traffic to Rapid City, only then did we start uh, not noticing the cops following us. So that was very intense. So we get to Rapid City, when there's the Indian Center there, and get coffee, sandwiches, and directions, and who to contact, and how to get to them to me. So we drive over to a place called Porcupine Community Center there. We pull on in, and it starts raining, and then it starts snowing, and a blizzard happened for about two or three days. So everybody in there were all suspicious of each other, and these Indians that were running everything, they weren't even from there. They were a different tribe, and I thought that was really odd, and they, they asked for our weapons, and we didn't want to give our weapons up. So we thought, well, this, aren't, this is not our territory. So they took our weapons and hid them from us. And after a couple of days, a Lakota woman come over and starts talking to me, and she goes, well, we see you guys all right. And I said, what's going on here? Why aren't you people run, running this? And she says, well, I don't know, she goes. And um, so she hooked us up with um, a guy who knew how to get into wounded knee. And, and they had like a safe house not too far from there. So these uh, guys from Seattle, they were security, and they come talk to us in the middle of the night. said, hey, I know where your guys' guns are. Uh, I said, well, good. So we went and got our guns. They were behind all the, the pantry where all the cans of canned food were. They were hidden back there. So we we went to the side door and we put them back in our vehicle. So we made it up. We're, we're going to go into Wounded Day the next night. And so security says 7 o'clock. Nobody goes to the building, leaves, or enters the building. So that day, we're burning some of our Angelica root. And one of the guys from Wisconsin comes and he looks and he sees us burn. And we got a little pipe. We're saying a little prayer because we know we're going to go to Wounded Knee. So he comes, guy, his name is Chris. He goes, oh, he goes, uh, the medicine man wants to see you out in front there. So it was a guy named One-Eyed Tom from Oklahoma. He says, hey, you Californians, you going to smoke your marijuana? You get the hell out of here. Go back to California. Your pipe will break in front of my sacred altar. So one of the guys of the two brothers one took that pipe up to him and said, here, let's see it break. And he wouldn't touch it. So the woman, the Lakota woman, she was telling me that these guys started running everything. And it was very really strange, you know. And so that night, we're going to split up in two, uh, two groups. Four is going to go in with the guide and, and uh, the, other, the other four, the two uh, got brothers and the two women were going to take the vehicles and go to Rosebud and Reservation and then Crow Dogs Paradise and then come in later. So... We make a decision. We're going to leave at 7 o'clock that night. And so the guy comes on over and says, hey, you guys can't leave. And, and two holy men from uh, upstate New York, uh, Iroquois, they wanted to go with us. 
So we said, we're leaving. And that guy's uh, leader, he's pointing his hands. You guys want to know your guns are. You guys get the heck out of here. He's pointing into the pantry, and we took them out the night before. So I asked the Leroy guys, where are you going? I'm going with them. So we went on to a safe house and went into Wounded Knee. But I had these holy men. I said, I know you guys are holy men. I says, but I need help. Can you carry a couple of these packs? And that was our ammunition, you know, and what food we had. We had to hike in after the blizzard, you know. So getting into Wounded Knee was uh, quite the journey. It was our other friends, uh, they made Rose, but they never made the Wounded Knee. A couple of them got arrested, you know. So when we got in the Wounded Knee, it was such a relief to be there because uh, some feds with a, a German Shepherd dog or something that he kind of hurt us, and flares were going up, you know, on the outside perimeter of Wounded Knee, and we're in the snow, laying down in the snow. So I'm taking a little break here in the snow, and, and I'm kind of resting my head on my head, and, and that. One young Lakota guy, he comes in and he taps me on the shoulder and says, Hey, brother, just don't close your eyes because you'll never wake up. So I got up on my feet, you know. So we made it in. And, you know, and I never knew some of those guys' names, the the holy men. But, you know, and and uh, the guy there, the, his name was Horace, the young guy who was 17. I was 20, and I was talking on this last trip to Wounded Knee here. Uh, week and a half ago, I was asking, you know, if anybody knew about this one guy, you know, his family. And they said, yeah, they did. So I made some good contacts. But it uh, sure be nice to see if he was still around in their family because they welcomed us to our land, you know, their land. And, you know, that's why I made it clear this last trip to Wounded Knee. I says, hey, I says, Californians. I says, no, and we, we don't just uh, have surfboards, you know. I'm going to nip that right in the bud, you know. Because they didn't think that Californians were warriors. They know different after that. So being in a wounded knee was, you know, I saved on my ammunition, but we were getting threatened to get overrun by APCs. I mean, what were we going to do with 22s and 3030s and against APCs? We would have had to, we would have to attack and try to overrun with APCs. We did ask for permission one time, and then uh, Russell Means and all of them, the AIM leadership, turned us down because they said it escalate the war. But we had talked about it because one APC, we were doing counter-surveillance on them. And they were getting moving closer, and they were closer, and we got to study their study their tactics, you know. Like, you know, they were cold. They didn't want to be outside. So we, we asked for permission to try to do our own, because we had a couple of Vietnam veterans up in California. So, yeah, and um, it didn't surprise me, but I was all for it, to go to try to get one of those APCs. But it could have probably meant, you know, the military standing by, they probably took us out. Willard, you uh, mentioned you were at Wounded Knee. How would you, for our listeners, how would you summarize not only the violence, but yet the ceremonies and also the cultural aspects of what the feeling at that time of Wounded Knee? Because a lot of people just focus on the um, confrontation. But what was lifelike in Wounded Knee. There was births, there was weddings, and there was ceremonies. Explain that to us. Unpack that for us, for our listeners. Yeah, um, like Wounded Knee, like, you know, there was ceremonies. My friend, a friend of mine named Philip Tripp, he was a Karuk Indian from upriver. He was one of my best friends. And he started going over to uh, Sweats with Wallace Black Elk. 
And I think he was going to participate in the ghost dance. I just can't be sure. But he uh, got to know them pretty well. And the um, Black Elk had showed uh, Philip about some of these bullets, these lead bullets. You can see where they hit the sweat house and they kind of laying on the ground, flattened. You know, they did penetrate the canvas. So there was, I know there was different people that came together, you know. I knew that there was a culture connection there because you had holy men you had curiosity seekers you had women there and there was one guy from the ozarks you know he looked like straight out of the straight out of the mountains you know he was a red-haired guy and he had this old shotgun you know and and he was there as a supporter so then i see the chicano movement uh the brown berets from denver I went over to the Wounded Knee, okay, here they had a little museum there. So I'm in there, and you can see where the display cases were broken, the glass, you know, where people took certain things, and certain things were pushed off in the corner there. It was broken glass, and it was dust. So I'm looking at Chief American Horses moccasins with the porcupine quills, and I'm looking at different artifacts and stuff, and some... Some Indian guy comes over and he says, hey, what are you doing over there? I said, I'm looking at this stuff here. And he goes, well, you can't be touching it. I go, listen, I said, why is this stuff over here getting dust and glass, laying in glass? Nobody cares. They just take, took what they want. And then, then I was looking through this stuff, and I seen two woven basket caps from our part of the country. This was, came from Klamath River. And I seen these two basket caps. And then with the old ancient dentalium, which we as tribes from here, we got from Vancouver, but we use that for money. So when I seen those two basket caps, I knew that we had a connection and we had this trade, commerce, what have you, for goods to make it all the way there. So I knew there was there was a connection. So I'm looking at all this sacred stuff, you know, and I'm feeling bad for it because I wanted to dust it off. And I, I started to, you know. So I finally got somebody's attention to take care of this stuff, put it somewhere, you know. And I, it, to me, I was to me, it was like just uh, disrespectful. And so I, there was a lot of different walks of life with, you know, that were there, you know. And of course, you know, there was a couple informants, and so it was. Uh, but the the cultural connection was so to me that showed we had this cultural connection for forever when you see a Yurok or Kuruk uh, basket cap weighing someplace a long ways away it was it was pretty amazing but uh I wanted to share with you when we left a few of us few sides stay in I decided that enough was enough for some reason I think I was there for 34 days or so and might have been gone from Archaea from university over 40 days, 40 some days, because I ended up Rosebud for a day or two after I got a wounded knee. But I told my my partner, Philip Tripp, I said, Philip, I said, I'm going to leave this evening. I'm going to go out with some guides. And um, I said, do you want to go? And he goes, no, I might hang out. And I said, okay. I, I said, but I'm going to leave at 7 o'clock from the wounded knee post office. Uh, Stan Lowry was a bit um, World War II veteran, and he was like the, my friend. He was the last one I talked to, and he was from a place called Susanville, Mountain Mighty. And I would hang out with him a lot there because he always had wood, and he had a nice wood stove to get warm. So me and Philip, we were walking out with our Lakota guides and one guy from Nebraska. 
and we're out on the prairies and Philip was telling me, he says, man, he goes, I was sleeping. He goes, Lord, he goes, I had this dream. He said, just dream. I said, I said, yeah. He said, well, you know, like how our, our women from our area with the white buckskin dresses and all the shells, I go, yeah. He goes, well, there was two of them and they were waking me up. I said, hey, time to go. It's time to go. And he says, I woke up and he says, I had to come find you. So deep in my mind, I got thinking, thinking, thinking about it. So uh, it, years went by, and I was trying to place those basket caps how they got there. And then I told my friend Philip, who lives down in uh, the Bay Area, I said, Philip, I, I called him up. I said, the two women that you seen in your dream with the buckskin dresses had to have been the two women that those caps belonged to. And we, we both said, wow. So it was it was something because we had a 50-cent piece when we left Wounded Knee to get home on, you know, and it was real dangerous. And we want to remind listeners you're listening to American Indian Airwaves on our ongoing series on the 50th anniversary of the occupation of Wounded Knee in 1973. We're speaking with longtime Native American activist, fisherman, and citizen of the Yurok Nation in Northern California, Willard Carlson, on his lived experiences during the reign of terror from the Yurok Nation to his participation in Wounded Knee. And now back to the interview. Well, Willard, it's a remarkable story that our listeners and people need to understand. And one of the things that came to me when you're telling that story, that looking back or even at Wounded Knee itself, and this is a lot of were a lot of personalities and the feds and agencies. They flooded the area, and people can read about that. But yet, it seems like, and especially what you said, you want to go over there and say the California Indians were just not, they were in the sense of uh, a people that not only had their issues, but yet they also had their spiritual journey that um, many of the nations, California, Oregon, up and down the coast, have. And that you were talking about it, and especially your last phrases and your last sharing of, of this vision and this of this dream, about all this was, even today, up to this moment, our spiritual journey. Talk about what that meant to you. That spiritual journey, what you not only experience at Wundanee, not only along the Swag, not only Alcatraz, and all those different things, but yet how that set the tone for the rest of your life. Well, you know, when when we left Arcata, we went to, um, we were getting gas middle of the night in a place called Sparks, Nevada, real close to Reno. And back then they had the uh, yeah, uh, gas pumps where you put dollar bills in, you know. So we were putting dollar bills in these gas pumps. And these maids pulled up. It's about 10 o'clock at night. And they said, hey, you guys going to Woody Knee? We said, yeah. They said, well, can you come down to our place? We'd like to um, get you some sandwiches and coffee and bless you with some uh, an eagle feather and some uh, red cedar smoke. Said, well, okay. So we made time down there, and they were really nice. And, and they said, we don't normally go out this time of night because the police in Sparks, Nevada, are very hard on Native people. So so it seemed, seemed to me like everywhere I went, Natives were having a hard time with the police. And so the, the spiritual man there, 
he had that red cedar and he took that uh, cedar smoke and he blessed us with a feather and he put it up the back top of her head for for wisdom and your back for strength for courage and he really blessed us you know on your your journey you know and it felt very i felt very good about it you know it was like wow these guys are these guys come outside just jump in their car and they i said you were meant to come find us and so i really believe that that uh those people in nevada there that their blessing had gave us some spiritual guidance and and put a protective veil over us and that really made my journey feel like well i have to have the you know the creator's going to take care of me and our people you know and i and i think back about that and so that was like that was like you know it wasn't like a um oh like a circle people smudging and the first time these guys were the real thing you know they were they were they were the real thing and i could feel it and i had to believe that my spirituality had carried me through a lot of things in my life because i had so many instances with death like down there fighting the feds in 1978 we were in our boat and a different boat me and my friends, there was four of us, and we were kind of getting further away from the our camp. And, and so our driver, he was younger than me, and he threw a rock, and he hit this driver, this big uh, fence boat in the back, and the guy got all pissed off. And so they came, and they rammed us, and they, and they sideswiped us. And, they, and this fed, he, he stuck his spotlight in my face, because their boat was really powerful more than ours. And we were trying to get back down to where the beach where we were, where we had the campment. And as soon as that guy stuck that uh, spotlight in my face, he was going to club me. Well, I had a more powerful spotlight and I stuck in his face. And as soon as it blinded him, he had lifted his club up. And as soon as I blinded him with my spotlight, I clubbed him. I hit him right on the top of the head. And then the boat ran over top of our boat. Their bottom was over top of ours. They had me pinned. With this, a little bit of air, my head sticking out of water, and they're going around in circles like they're trying to drown me. Had I not, had I let go, I could have got hit by their propellers. So some people saying, "Hey, you're drowning him," and I had hiking boots on, I had a thick cotton shirt, and I had Levi's on. So finally, when they stopped, I wiggled out and I started swimming. They said, "Get that sob in the water." So I dove and I dove, you know, under the water. And so I popped up, and they're going to try to run over me again. And then this time, I dove again. I really held my breath as long as I could. It's about 10 o'clock at night. So I pop on up out of there, and I think they thought they drowned me because they started heading up river. And my friend Frankie was already fighting with them, and the driver of our boat, somebody picked him up. And so I could see our campfire way down the beach, probably oh, maybe 400 yards or better and so i'm just making there because i know if i go to the bank from where we were there'd be feds there so three or four boats were looking for me and finally these guys they spot me and they come on over and damn what are you scared the heck out of us and then i said geez guys i'm glad to see you and so they grabbed me by my belt and my shirt and they pulled me in the boat and they said we thought you're gone and i said i said it's kind of hard to catch a um a slippery eel i said but i said boys i says i'm glad to see you but i was just out for a midnight swim i told them you know and we make it down to the beach and some of 
friend had some warm clothes and some shoes and things like that. And so we go up to Delmar County Jail where they housed the prisoners from the fish wars, which was illegal because that was a, not a federal facility. And so we get on in there and we're waiting to see where our friends got arrested. And so it was about two o'clock in the morning then. We're sitting in the lobby of the sheriff's office and here comes those feds. And here's that guy that was going to club me. He had a black guy, he had his head all wrapped up, and he had an arm in a sling, and he's walking with a cane or a crutch. And I, he didn't even look at me, and I, I went ahead and I snickered at him. I says, yeah. So I just thought, you know, of the many different times and getting shot at, wounded knee, and gun battles on the Klamath River from different things and uh, brushes with death. So my spirituality had had guided me through because I when I was uh when I was in my mother's womb where I live right now across the river the house is no longer there but that's where my old people stayed and my mother was going to miscarry me and my and my father put my mom in a river dugout canoe and paddled down the river and the old people took care of my mom for about a month or so and I made it and I I uh was born and then Six months after when I was born, after I was born, uh, Dad's truck got stuck, and him and Mom had to camp out on a place called Bald Hills, and there was a panther that was circling around all night to smell, smell that breast milk because those panthers would come up and they smell breast milk, and they'd, they would try to uh, go and and take these uh, little infant babies and out of their mom's arms, you know. So and so you know, so I always had something kind of looking over me. I believe I had some good medicine and take back the times when I had problems with my alcoholism. But, you know, old old uh, warriors, they don't want to go out saying, well, I did some great things, but I want to be remembered as, oh, heck, that I drank myself to death, you know. So I had to rebound, you know. So I got 19 years clean and sober now. Oh, thank you, uh, Willard, for, for sharing, uh, sharing your stories with us. And for our listeners, um, just based on... You know, the stories you've shared and, and those struggles back home, out to Wounded Knee. What would you like uh, the youth and just people in general to take away from your lived experiences you've been sharing with us? The main thing is when I went to Wounded Knee and then when I came on home is to take care of the home front wherever you are. Wherever your home is. You might be a university student. You may have a connection in the North Coast or some neat place. And it's always good to remember you want to take care of the home front. That's taking care of your water, your earth, your people. People will look at you, you know, you if you're you're one of these people who you got honesty and integrity, like, you know, like my sons are very good singers and and they're always asked to sing for a special event and sometimes funerals and things like that, you know, and so they're very well respected in that way, and, and I have to be grateful for a lot of different uh, trials and tribulations in my life, and, and I, I like to go and remember that you never forget where you came from and who your ancestors are, and the carry-on, the carry-on now the, is getting our, our young people to, it's very important to go into universities, but as maybe uh, it's good to be able to do something at home for the ones that really want to do something at home. Think what you want to do. 
there's environmental justice, we need hydrologists, we need attorneys, we need doctors, we need nurses. People study federal Indian law because the thing is, we're always going to have people that's going to be after our water. Water is the very biggest issue right now. Um, the Arctic Wildlife Refuge for our, my, my friends that live up in the Arctic there, they're subsistence hunters, you know, along the Yukon and the Chandelar River, Arctic Village. I have friends up there. They depend on caribou. They're subsistence people. The moment of silence is over. And that was Willard Carlson in part two of our two-part interview, speaking on his lived experiences during the reign of terror in the Yurok Nation in Northern California and his participation in the 1973 occupation of Wounded Knee. This is part of our ongoing series on the 50th anniversary of the occupation of Wounded Knee. That concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest for the hour, Willard Carlson. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Floyd Red Crow Westerman, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studios of Burnt Swamp Studios in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Why your freedom manifests on their graves And the blood never comes clean from their guilty minds Nor the hands that hold the chains Silence is over.